Welcome, everyone, to Fighting the Fakes, a special storyology event presented in partnership with RMIT. I'm Jackie Park, CEO of the Walkley Foundation for Journalism, and it's great to see you all here tonight, because it's pretty chilly to be getting out. <clears throat> I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respect to all elders past and present and their great traditions of storytelling. Storyology is the centrepiece of our public program at the Walkley Foundation, and it's the biggest discussion of journalism and storytelling in Australia. We've taken storyology on the road this year, last week in Brisbane, later this week in Sydney, and we are really pleased that we can share this conversation with you here in Melbourne tonight. At the Walkleys, we celebrate and support great Australian journalism. We do that by benchmarking excellence with the Walkley Awards. We also connect journalists with resources like training, professional development exchanges and funds for innovation. We look to the future in this disrupted time for media and lead a conversation about where journalism is heading. We also work to help the broader public understand why good journalism is so important to our society, our democracy and our culture. Now, we do all this as a not-for-profit, so we love to be able to work with many partners who support the Foundation's work. And you don't have to be a big company to support the Walkleys. Anyone can make a donation of any size. So if you care about good journalism, why don't you think about doing that? Now, we're delighted to work with RMIT tonight to present this talk where everyone can be part of the conversation. Thanks to MEAA for helping us connect with Melbourne's journalists, and thanks also to the State Library of Victoria for hosting the event. If you enjoyed tonight's event, I highly recommend signing up for the Walkley email newsletter. Each week we share stories, news, and their upcoming events um, around the country. So just head to walkleys.com forward slash subscribe. And if you're a journalist, I hope you have your Walkley entry in. If you're still working on it, remember they close this Friday and we're looking forward to seeing your best work. Now, globally, we've been hearing more and more about fake news. There's a certain rather orange bloke in America that likes to use this term pretty regularly. And unfortunately, it's been adopted as a quick way for powerful people to dismiss reporting they don't like or they disagree with. We've even seen Australian politicians using it, and it's a dangerous way to shut down dissent and reporting. The thing is, fake news is a real problem, but it manifests in different ways around the world. In Brisbane, we heard from BuzzFeed's media editor, Craig Silverman, one of the world's leading experts on fake news and misinformation, about the different kinds of fake news the different permutations different, driven by different motivations, ideological and financial. And perhaps the good news for Australia is that he, he said that the money's not really in Australia to drive the advertising for the kind of fake news that occurred in the US around the election. But it still leaves a big uh, area for the ideological. And we'll have that talk up on our website soon, so if you're interested, you can get over there and download it. So while we're hearing the words fake news more often, it's not a new phenomenon. I know at the Walkleys, we like to focus on solutions. So tonight, we have a brilliant group of speakers. They'll be talking a little bit about how these problems manifest in different parts of the world. But they'll be talking much more about how journalists, editors and publishers are fighting back. Now, I can't wait to hear from them. So I'm going to welcome our moderator for, the, for this evening from RMIT ABC Fact Check, Russell Skelton. Over to you, Russell. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I suppose it's a pretty interesting subject. Are we winning the war? Or are we losing it against um, fake news? Does the war even matter? Well, to a lot of us it does. But before we get into tonight's uh, discussion, let me introduce the panel. 
Uh, right next to me here is Frederick Pelou, who is the editor of the Monday Note, which is, I would recommend, compulsory reading for anybody who's interested in this space at all. Um, you've been around since 2007, you've 30,000 subscribers. Um, I gave it to Fairfax editors when I was working at Fairfax to read and take note. If they had followed your advice, I think the age and the Sydney Morning Herald would be in much better shape today. <laughs> um, we also have here Kate Tawney. Um, and I've got a confession to make. She's my old boss. <laughs> she actually hired me to run uh, ABC Fact Check. So um, don't be deceived by that smile, by the way. <laughs> but Kate ran a team of uh, some 1,400 um, editorial professionals at the ABC for many years and did it with uh, a great deal of brilliance and success. And now she's running the State Library, which is our oldest um, cultural institution. Is it older than MIT? I suppose it is. Yeah. Okay. And we have uh, Irene J. Lu from Google News Lab. Um, you've been based in Hong Kong. Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, no, no, finalist, finalist, just as good, mind you, just as good. <laughs> Any of us would give their right arm to be in that, that league. Um, and uh, we have Gordon Farrar, who is the, um, I guess, what would you call yourself, the academic investigator into fact-check journalism in this country. There's very little that Gordon doesn't know about fact-checking. He's been doing all the conferences. He's with me in Madrid earlier this year. Um, picking up on what the latest trends are and where we're headed. Now, Gordon, I know you've got a passion about fake news. You, you're very disparaging of people who keep using this term. Um, would you like to say why we should maybe take a more nuanced I'd, approach? I'd be happy to. to is, this, is this actually on? I didn't actually press it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not just me um, who's um, a bit upset or a bit... Um, Uneasy about the way the, the term fake news has been using, are being used. Um, Jackie told us a moment ago that politicians have sort of co-opted this this term. So fake news has come to mean in the, in the mouths of politicians um, reporting that they don't like, that it is inconvenient, that they want to sort of dampen down. So they've taken this as a bit of a put down put down label. Um, fake news used to have a very specific meaning, and I would like to hang on to that specific meaning, and that is um, news that is actually fictitious, news that is meant to look like real news but has a, has a purpose of, of, to make money, as Jackie mentioned a moment ago, or um, has a propaganda purpose. But there's another dar even darker purpose than that that we might talk about. If we get to the Russians, um, if we don't get to the Russians, remind me and we'll talk about the Russians a bit later. Well, I definitely <laughs> want to get to the Russians. We'll get to the Russians, okay. So, so fake news has a very specific um, meaning and that's being debased. So in, we in the fact-checking movement, the fact-checking industry, like to use the term, and I know this is a mouthful and it's never going to end up in a headline anywhere, we use the term misinformation ecosystem. I know that, that, that that's not it doesn't roll off the tongue very easily and it's not going to supplant the, the term fake news. But the important thing to understand about this, and the, the reason I'm upset um, that fake news is being, being debased in a way and being used as the sole term here, is that the misinformation ecosystem comprises a whole lot of things, not just false news stories. Um, there are all sorts of practices that are, that are being um, perpetrated out there that are designed to sow disinformation and misinformation. There's a difference between the two, misinformation being information that is simply wrong, disinformation being information that is wrong with a purpose, with a particular, um, a, a particular purpose of undermining um, our, our, um, our trust in various um, systems, such as democracy and, and journalism itself. So um, I think we would need to be very careful about talking about fake news. Um, I think Facebook now just refers to it as false news. I think that's their term. Um, but I think we need to be very careful about how we use it and understand that there are shades of uses and shades of misinformation. And each one of those shades of misinformation, that type of misinformation, has a specific purpose and it has um, specific solutions, if indeed there are solutions to deal with those things. Irene, can I ask you just to explain a little bit about uh, Google News Lab? Sure. Um, and then answer this question. <laughs> um, why are these sites so successful? What, why are they taking over our... Why is there such an ecosystem of fake news sites? And, uh, why why, are, why is, the, is misinformation so successful? Yes. Okay. So just quickly, um, Google News Lab is a small division within 
this large, very, very large company that is Google, um, that is specifically focused on working with reporters and editors, um, focused solely on editorial. So that means reporting, um, storytelling, and it's not our team that's doing it. Basically, we want to support journalists who are trying to do this work. So in some ways, it means uh, getting access to tools, tools that Google um, you know, has, such as mapping and search and uh, all these other tools that have actually quite a few implications and applications for debunking hoaxes. Um, also, um, we will do partnerships. So when newsrooms are trying to do innovative stories or trying to apply tools in a n new kind of way for things like fact-checking or verification, um, and we can be supportive, we'll, we'll do that as well. And then also just because, you know, Google is a well-known company and, uh, you know, we, we have this ability to also uh, provide resources and convene. So when news organizations, uh, maybe they would not necessarily partner naturally with each other because as journalists we're all hyper-competitive, um, you know, we would come in and try to, um, you know, serve as a, as a, as a, a, you know, a neutral space to convene um, different organizations towards this work of, of, of journalism and, um, you know, in, in improving the information ecosystem. Um, specifically to your question about why misinformation is, you know, proliferating and doing so well, I would say that, you know, there are a lot of smart cookies who understand technology and understand how people consume content. Um, and unfortunately, I would say that newsrooms sometimes are not as quick on the uptake as these people who have this incentive to make money or to sow misinformation or disinformation into the ecosystem. And so part of, I think, our task as journalists is to understand how they're doing this work, um, how they're winning, and identify opportunities for us to kind of uh, insert ourselves as journalists, as purveyors of verifiable information with high quality standards that we aspire to. We don't always succeed, but you know, we have standards um, to try to counter that, that, that content. But I think that you know, it's just, there's too much money to be made. There are too many reasons for you know, political and otherwise, um, and the technology constantly changes. So you know, uh, they're, they're succeeding mm. in, in leveraging the technology. The point about too much money being made, I mean, you've still got very, and this is something uh, Monday Note is focused on, Frederick, uh, you've got um, quite reputable advertisers advertising on fake news sites, generating revenue. So you have universities, uh, airlines, yeah. um, uh, all sorts, even government bodies uh, advertising. Well, everybody, everybody's there, I mean, yeah. if you, if you so, take the list. So. so I guess the question is, is there a big disconnect? Should Google actually be looking at these fake sites and not taking the advertising or... Actually, if I'm not mistaken, Google has taken several steps uh, to, uh, to uh, basically uh, cut off the financial support for the, uh, for the fake news ecosystem. The problem, is, the problem is less... I mean, to the credit of Google, I think they have been identifying the problem uh, very early on. That's much less the case for uh, Facebook and that's not the case for the advertising system uh, uh, by and large. When you're referring to a story I published uh, just a week ago about the fact that there is 650 brands, roughly, who are still supporting fake news as we speak right now, including totally and uh, without their knowledge, including large brands such as the New York Times found itself on fake news sites, the Wall Street Journal found itself on fake news sites. Of course, this... Um, news outlets spend a great deal of their time at denouncing fake news. So it is simply the, um, the neglect, the negligence of the advertising machinery which allows that. But when it's come to the uh, fighting fake news, my belief is that the most potent tool is actually to cut off the money. At Stanford, we had a conference uh, from a guy who was actually producing fake news at a very large scale. He explained us the, the economics of fake news. It is incredibly, incredibly profitable. This guy was making huge amount of money to the point that it, it became some kind of game for him to actually produce uh, fake news. To come back to the definition of fake news, yes, I mean, it's a term which is used uh, um, everywhere. I would make the classification by the level of dangerosity of, uh, of misinformation. But to me, in many, many news organizations today, we have fake news 
which uh, is just near legitimate news. If you take um, Outbrain, for instance, and Taboola, I'm sorry, but it is fake news. It is soft fake news. It is relatively innocuous because uh, being able to, uh, to, to um, promise to, to learn uh, Chinese in six weeks is inaccurate, but it's, it's so gross, so ridiculous that it's, 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 it's inoffensive. But there is, the fact of the matter is, there is in news organization a great deal of tolerance for what I call junk news or soft fake news. Hmm. Um, which leads us to um, another issue here, and that is that a lot of these fake news sites are doing better journalism than the proper news sites. And in other words, they can get their message across, they write fabulous tabloid headlines, they hook people in. Does that mean that news organisations, fact-checking outfits need to get better at what they're doing? Do they need to be able to get... You know, we have a, a fake news story will spread. Three, three days later, some, somebody, PolitiFact or somebody will come out yeah, and say it's rubbish. But, but I, I, as, as uh, Rain put it, I mean, we have a lot, I mean, we, uh, a legitimate news organization, have a lot of, uh, learn to learn, mm. have a lot to learn mm. from the fake news, the mm. way they, they propagate news. Mm. Actually, one of the uh, problems with the news organization, and I've been in this business for, for quite a while, we have been always very late at doing some kind of editorial marketing. I remember when uh, I was, um, I became the editor of a French newspaper called Liberation in French. In France, I began to establish some kind of bridges with the marketing department. And my name was some kind of leaflet in the elevator saying that I was betraying the spirit of a journalist and, uh, and so on and so forth. So there is this long cultural antagonism when it comes to doing some editorial marketing. It is changing a little bit. Uh, with the new generation of people who have been attuned to use um, marketing technique to promote news. But it is very recent, and unfortunately, it's people from my age which are uh, still terrified by any, the idea of marketing, which are still running newsroom, and that's a problem. Mm. So get rid of people of my age. Oh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think it's just people of your age. Try being at a public broadcaster and suggesting to journalists that you need marketing. That's, that's a real challenge. I don't think it's people of your age, and I think your point, Russell, is a really good one. I think, and now I'm just a news consumer, nothing more than a news consumer. I think um, news organisations have to get much better at telling their stories. And as a news consumer, I think you have to, to have a much greater understanding of how people consume information. When I look back at my time, my 25 years as a journalist, I wish I'd taken a break at some point to actually understand how people outside my ecosystem really consume news. And I think that's a great, a great problem for the big news organisations because I, sometimes I think that doesn't happen enough. Mm. Uh, if, if I may, just to add to your point, in order to, to fight fake news on the, on the long run, uh, I think educating people on the value of news is very important. Today, a 20-year-old person needs to understand that every piece of information are not equal. Information cannot be summed up to a little snap, uh, snapshot or snap stuff that they will find in their news stream. That there are behind uh, well-researched and in-depth information people that are spending a great deal amount of competencies and resources and uh, news has some value. People need to pay for news. And the problem with Facebook, I think, is that it dilutes both the brand and the author. The notion of authorship is very funny because each year there is the Reuters Institute which produce a, a brilliant analysis. It's publicly available, so you should have a look at it. Uh, and they, they, um, they have a question about um, how are you able to recognize the source of an information and let alone the author of an information. And year after year, you see a lesser number of people being able to recognize their source of an information. Can I the notion show? of brand is disappearing to them. <laughs> Can I just interrupt there? Uh, Kate, the role of the library. 
beautiful segue, actually. Uh, because I, actually, when, when... It could be quite important in this, it, couldn't I it? I think, absolutely, because I think when, when you were all talking, it's funny, I've only been out of media for two years, but in thinking about this panel, my, my thinking was all about the consumer, not, not about the journalists and the media and the newsrooms, etc. because ultimately it is about educating people around news and educating people around sources of news. And I think libraries do have an enormous role to play. 74% of the people in this library, and it's 2 million people a year, 70% um, in there today are under the age of 30, which I just think is fascinating. So this is an old institution, very traditional institution, and yet young people are coming here. So why is that? In a highly connected world, it's about connectivity. It's about um, being able to use the inspiration of the space, I think. It's being able to use the, wi the Wi-Fi. I don't really care why they're coming, but they are coming. And I think libraries do have a role to play in educating people around news fluency. Where does your news come from? How do you do deep research? Um, and we find that there's a real appetite for that. So I think at institutions like this, but most importantly, at public libraries, um, real opportunity to provide education mm. campaigns with schools, with universities. Irene, you were going to... Yes, I was going to say, I think one thing that is um, really interesting about this space is that, um, you know, as the, the discourse about fake news, misinformation becomes mainstream, people do become more aware and more skeptical of where, you know, just questioning where their information is coming from. I think one of the challenges that we face on all of the platforms that um, we consume information online is this issue of labeling, right? So Frederick mentioned the problem of kind of the diminishing brand um, of brand awareness that news organizations um, have. I think part of it, and uh, also just, you know, not only just the brand of news organizations that could serve as that kind of trigger of, oh, okay, this is a news organization that I kind of trust, I'm going to follow it, but also the labeling around content, right? So, um, you know, it conflated into all of this is the problem that people will say, oh, well, that newspaper is right-wing, that paper is left-wing, because what they're seeing, it may not actually be a straight news story. It may be an editorial. It may be an opinion piece. It may be a provocative headline meant for social media. But then what happens is people don't understand, unlike when we were reading newspapers and we could actually see, oh, it's on this page or it's on this page, content was labeled very clearly. Now we don't actually get that when we're on these platforms. And I think as a result, um, you know, our skepticism is elevated, but our trust is also diminishing um, because we, we don't have context for what we're reading. And I think that that's really one of the big challenges that all platforms face is how do we elevate labels so that people can actually, um, you know, w even if they do have news literacy, that they actually are able to, um, to, 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 to discriminate between different types of content. There is a sort of a paradox here, isn't there, where you've got um, more and more people don't trust the media as a general thing, um, but fact-checking sites and popularity going up, driving bigger and bigger numbers, attracting revenue. Uh, how do we explain this? Um, perhaps, Gordon, you'd like to chip in on this. How do we explain this paradox? Well, I think there is an audience out there of people who do want to know what is true, and I'll put that in inverted commas because you know, we could have an epistemological argument for the rest of the night if we go down that rabbit hole. Um, but there is an audience out there who does want to be able to base... Um, based their electoral decisions, their voting decisions, for example, on, on real debate based on real argument, based on rational argument, not based on, on false opinion or false um, information that they've been fed somehow. Um, one of the wonderful things about the fact-checking movement, and, and I don't know whether we need to have a little sidebar here to explain exactly what fact-checking is and how it's actually different to the traditional journalism practice of... OK, very quickly, 101. <laughs> fact-checking journalism used to mean only... A journalist would go out and uh, research a story, check the, check the sources, double-check, triple-check the sources, fact-check what they were writing, put it together and publish it uh, online in a newspaper as a broadcast. Fact-checking operations now, and Russell heads our wonderful one at um, RMIT now, ABC RMIT, um, 
is a different entity, a different sort of beast. The idea of the, these sort of fact-checking operations is that they take a statement made in public, so a, a claim made by a politician, a union leader, a business leader, someone like that, and they say, is that true? How can we check that? They go to the source of that, that, uh, that claim, ask them for their sources, what did you base that on? They go and check that. They go and speak to some experts in that field. They learn all about the, the um, issue at stake here. They analyse the information, they analyse reports, they look to see whether the information was cherry-picked. And then at the end of the process, and this can take four, five, six days. It can take some even longer. I think you had one, took two weeks once. Two weeks, At the yeah. end of that, a journalist writes up the fact check and then comes up with a verdict about whether the statement was true or false. That is really important. The idea that a journalist would say this is true or this is false is a real departure from traditional kinds of journalism, which was meant to be objective. Now, when you ask about why fact-checking is, is becoming a big thing and why it, it, it is believed by those who, who follow it, I think the main ingredient in this process is transparency. Um, a couple of years ago at Buenos Aires, the International Fact-Check Network had a summit where they worked out a code of principles for fact-checkers around the world. And the main ingredient in nearly every one of the points was transparency. Transparency of your sources, transparency of methodology, transparency of, basic, of the basic position from which you come. And I think transparency, in, in a sense, is supplanting objectivity as, as a journalistic ideal. And I think that transparency enables people to look at what is done by fact-checkers and say, OK, I can see exactly how you've come up with that, and that makes it a more trustworthy product. That makes it a more trustworthy thing to accept because you can see how it's been done. And I, think, I do think that that is part of uh, one of the main reasons that fact-checking is, is more trusted. Can I also add one addendum sure. as well? In addition to fact-checking, another aspect of, the, you know, of this is now what we call verification. Because um, while fact-checking is very focused on a public statement um, that you can, you know, that, 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 that fact-checkers will say, based on our research, based on our reporting, this is true, partially true or not true, verification is a new phenomenon that really um, has sprung up basically because of the Internet, right? So um, now that everyone, you know, anyone can shoot a, you know, a, a video, take a photo, publish news, and put it online... Um, there's this whole kind of required movement to actually verify the photos and the videos um, and, what, and what people's accounts of stories. Uh, and, you know, there are whole techniques to how you do that. So, um, you know, a lot of the kind of misinformation that you're seeing now through things like uh, chat apps in Asia are usually photos where the, it's just, it is a photo, but it's not the right context or um, a video that, um, you know, purports some kind of health claim or something else that is not true. And so you have to now verify this content, particularly user-generated content, citizen-generated um, you know, content. Um, to, to, and, and so that's become, that's become its own kind of subset of this, this whole um, effort to counter misinformation. Can I just bring the conversation now back to Australia? Um, when you look at Europe, when you look at America, we have this industrial-scale... Um, fake news, if I dare use that term anymore, um, where you have all these bots generating out stuff, and I think some of your analysis of the French election, Frederick, was that these bots can work faster than the human hand, you know, so um, they can spread this stuff so quickly and so virulently through the ecosystems. Um, we don't seem to have that in Australia yet. Um, I'm just wondering how you see the situation in Australia. Um, I've yet to see that industrial scale um, uh, operating of false news um, and dressed up websites, you know, imitation websites and all the rest of it. But it doesn't mean to say it's not going to happen or it won't come here. I'm just uh, wondering how all of you um, see the situation. Uh, how vulnerable are we here? start and then hand over because I, again I'm not in the sector anymore but I, I would make the observation how um, how much I think it's changed so quickly in the two years that I've been out and so you might not have seen it yet and yet if we wound back two years I don't think we could have imagined a scenario that we see in the states at the moment and I think the interesting thing to, to watch as an observer um, is how quickly we seem to accept um, the situation as well. And I think for journalists, how powerless journalists covering politics in Washington are, 
um, in a scenario whereby it's acceptable for a president to not necessarily answer question, questions or, or to have some element of greyness around question, the answers that he's providing. Well, he lies. Well, I, you I, know? I, well, I'm not a library, <laughs> well all, all, no, no, I'm just saying that the Bertha... Uh, the, all the stuff about Hillary Clinton, you know, being behind the rise of ISIS. I mean, outright lies. I think my point is yeah. how quickly mm. the landscape can change, yeah. quite apart from mm. the technology changes yeah. that that can bring as well. Mm. Uh, I'm just thinking ahead here. Um, <laughs> Russia's, as you have fingered them, has been one of the great instigators of this and been behind a lot of these... Um, great waves of disinformation, um, which have disrupted democracies. They, they're obviously aiming to disrupt um, the EU, NATO, partners, all the rest of it. That seems to be their political purpose. I mean, if Australia were to cross Putin's path in the wrong way, and we've done it on a couple of occasions, um, would we be immune from them interfering in our elections, do you think? I don't see, I don't see why you would be immune. I mean... Uh... Um, tomorrow Putin will, might be willing to disrupt uh, the electoral process and the democratic process in, uh, in, uh, in Australia and in the region in the same way that he wants to do that in France. The, the problem, I was explained that by uh, 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 some people I, I met at, at Stanford and I asked them what, what is the real motive of, of Putin to uh, go against to disrupt nearly any any electoral process in uh, in Europe is that Putin doesn't want Putin wants to go back to some kind of uh, bilateral bilateralism. He doesn't want to have to deal with some kind of multi um, multilateral organizations such as the EU, which is inflicting sanction and mm. so forth. So, I mean, if uh, Australia um, uh, crossed the path with Putin by being involved in the much uh, in the old organization, the regional organization, I'm pretty sure that uh, Putin will be able to, to, to will be quite willing to disrupt this mm -hmm. for the sake for the sake of uh, a preference to bilateralism as opposed to multilateralism. And he seems to be quite cynical in the way he chooses his um, allegiances. Marie Le Pen. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. Uh, Donald Trump. Likes to he likes to make trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the theory is that he, um, excuse me, that um, Putin hasn't actually engaged in it or developed an allegiance with Trump. He's just used him as a bit of a pawn in order to, um, to mould or disrupt and mould um, American public opinion. I think the theory is that the Russians have planted a whole lot of um, fake news, and I mean that in the, in the original sense, fake news stories um, in American social media, and they've sort of weaponised social media and weaponised fake news in order to, to create... Um, disaffection with democracy itself, with politicians, with processes, and to, to split the country um, in several parts, not just in two. Um, that's the theory of it. Um, and they've, they've used all sorts of methods to do that. They plant um, stories in social media so that ordinary citizens see them and, and start to question the validity, the validity of um, journalism itself and the sort of news that they see. They've planted stories and put them in front of... Um, members of the White House, specifically into their social media feeds, into the feeds of journalists who, who show a propensity to lean one way or another, feed them fake news stories that they then go and follow up and, and write legitimate news stories about. Um, so it's all part of an effort to disrupt and to shape um, the way um, Americans think. And whether they want to do that here, I don't know. I don't know whether it would work in the same way. Um, one thing I would say about fake news in Australia is that we haven't seen the same sort of fake news websites, the websites that purport to be real news sites and are publishing material that is just made up and is, and is designed to, to um, disrupt democracy or to, to um, reduce faith in our politicians or to just um, serve a political purpose. But what we do see is one of the other kinds of misinformation that is popular in the, that misinformation ecosystem, and they are uh, memes. Now, you've probably all seen memes. You know, they're all over Facebook. Basically, a photo with a funny caption or um, an attacking caption or some sort of slogan. Um, these are used all over Facebook pages, Facebook groups that I follow. Um, and, some of the, and I follow a whole lot of really 
extreme and quite nasty <laughs> Facebook groups. They've all let me in. They know that I'm an academic who's researching this sort of area, and they all let me in because they think that I'm going to listen to their message. Um, but once I'm inside some of these extreme groups, I see these memes all the time. And these are things that are really difficult to fact-check because for fact-checkers to see them, they're not found easily by search engines because they're an image. And it's harder to search the, the words on an image than it is to search words in, in text to work out that something is, is false news or is fake and, and is therefore worth checking. It's harder still to find a source of them. I've it's noticed very a lot to of them are coming into my Facebook feed at the moment. And they're very, very easy to share. They're all political, yep. highly political, left and right, yep. um, and quite vitriolic. And, and the challenge also is that even if you are able to fact-check it, the fact-check is often, by its very nature, nuanced. So the delivery of the rebuttal to that meme um, is not in a format that people will bother reading. And that's really the challenge as well, is that um, the reason why memes spread so well is because they're sticky, they're interesting, right? You know, images are very interesting. I mean, you know, who would have, and I don't think anyone anticipated this, right? Because who would have imagined that you could have whole conversations, whole courtships with little pictures you know, like emoticons, right? I mean, who would have thought, you know, 10 years ago that that's how we would be communicating with each other? Um, and so this is just another new form of language, and I think that that's really one of the big challenges. Um, you know, and in this, and, and we have not, as, you know, purveyors of high-quality information, um, have not found a language that is nearly as um, sticky or interesting or pithy, as as those who are you know uh, you know using these these tools to to kind of um, spread misinformation and I think that's a big challenge and a this big is, this problem. is uh, something that came up at Global Fact Four in Madrid, uh, the conference that Gordon and I attended to, um, and people were exploring well do we need to actually be talking to our audiences differently? Um, should we do more explainers, more fact files? You know, the, the, do this latest generation of news consumers know what herd immunity is when it comes to vaccination? Do they actually know what the Nazi party represents? I mean, should we, so when we talk about the Nazis in America, who, who are they actually thinking about or visualising? They're not thinking about Hitler or the Gestapo or death camps, they're thinking about something else. Um, and I'm just wondering, do we need to change the language in which we, we talk? I think um, even the... Um the mere reference to news consumers. When I think about my 14-year-old, she just does not see herself as a news consumer. She just consumes information. Right. And so I think the way in which... I, I think you're absolutely on the right track. I think the way in which um, we present information needs to take that into account. Um, that, that news consumers, in a way, are a thing of the past. People are just consuming information in a range of different forms... And to think of, of news consumers as opposed to those who are consuming um, a whole lot of other information is maybe part of the problem because... Sounds like it's part of my problem too. <laughs> Although, and can I jump in there? Because I think what we do at RMIT ABC Fact Check is a wonderful and noble thing. But to ask someone, to try to correct a misheld view of someone by asking them to come to your website and read a, a, a thousand-word, well-researched piece... Um, is a bit of an ask. There are people who are interested in it and it's a fantastic thing to do and we must keep doing it. But to speak to certain groups who, who, who um, hold some quite um, nasty views based on some, uh, some horrible misinformation or so, so, some, I will say, fake, new, fake, fake information is a, is a difficult thing to do and they won't be the ones reading that. I... Very, very quickly, one of my hobbies is to go into some of these extreme websites and debunk things that are said there. Um, I, saw, I saw something recently, there was a tin of a pulled pork product and at the bottom of it the, there was a photo was sitting there and at the bottom of the product it had a halal certified. And the people on this website had gone nuts. See, they're lying, they're just making money, they're terrorists, blah, blah, blah. So I went and did a bit of a research. I found the image online, I found the original product. It didn't have that sticker there. I found a blog by an Indonesian blogger. I translated it into English using Google Translate, thank you. Um, I read it. He had seen the same photo. He had debunked the whole thing. I went back into, the, into this Facebook group and I said, look, this isn't true. This is a fake. You've been duped. If you want to be prejudiced and biased and bigoted, that's okay by me. I don't care. But base it on facts, not on false stuff, right? 
someone responded to me, oh, and by the way, I'm always surprised by the number of people who like it when I do that. In these extreme groups, I still get people liking what I've done. Anyway, this day, one person didn't like what I'd done. He went and had a look at my profile, and he came back and, and started a tirade in which he described me as a, a PC troll, a politically correct troll. And I thought about it for a moment. I thought, that's the perfect thing to be. In that situation, in that situation, to be a PC troll would be a good thing. So I want to start an army of PC trolls where we create memes that speak back to the memes that come out of those groups because that's how you speak the, the, in that environment. Well, and, you know, news organizations are, some of them are doing this. Taking Indonesia, for example, which has a very significant misinformation um, hoax problem, and they're very aware of it, the citizenry. Um, Tempo, which is an, a traditional investigative magazine, um, during uh, the most recent election, during one of the debates, they actually created memes to fact check in real time. And wow. so they, and, and the rationale was, well, this will go viral or this will get spread on social much better than if we come up with a you know, dissertation about why the statement is incorrect. So I think that that's one thing that's interesting. The other thing that you mentioned, which I thought was interesting, um, and I've been thinking a lot about this as well, is this issue of not having the language to express um, doubt or skepticism um, or whatever. So what does a like mean? You know, and I've thought about this a lot. You know, you see someone posts an, uh, a, a legitimate news article about a tragedy, right? You know, if people like it, are they like, they're, they're certainly, certainly not liking it because um, they are happy someone was hurt, but they're liking it because they want to show support. I mean, it's like the language of um, these emoticons and these responses are, are quite murky and challenging, right? And um, particularly on the issue of skepticism. You know, you may actually see something that you kind of think that's not right or not shady, but there's no way for you except to sound like a jerk and say, you know, you're wrong, which is not a very nice thing to do if it's a family or friend, uh, you know, on, on social media. <laughs> um, you know, there's really no way to kind of just express that sort of level of doubt. And I wonder if there's a way that we can, you know, since now everything is becoming more visual, um, whether we could come up with a new language, a new, a new way to kind of get at the nuances of this mm. in some way. We are trying to do that on Facebook, uh, on uh, Fact Check at RMIT, by the way. We're doing storyboards and we're doing just information sheets as well as the, the fact checks because we don't expect everybody to rip through 2,000 words of dry analysis. But I just I wanted to um, raise the French election. Does that give us hope that the fake news is not taking over. Um, it, it, can we draw from those experiences? I mean, a number of really interesting things happened during the French election. Yeah, one of the most important things which happened in the French election is that just uh, uh, less than uh, 12 hours before the so-called quiet period in which a candidate is not, no, no candidate is supposed to, to communicate, we have this um, email uh, dump uh, about uh, against Emmanuel Macron, uh, which was very cleverly done because uh, obviously uh, the email account has been hacked and has, they have been published, um, but they have been kind of sandwiched. Uh, the fake news were um, mixing with real information. And you, have, you had to... Uh, have, put a great look at it in order to see what could be fake, what could be right, because a lot of the majority of the email were right, but at some point you had fake stuff. So it was, it was kind of sophisticated. It was purely circumstantial that it did not have any impact on the election, because it, again, it happened just uh, 36 hours before the actual uh, beginning of the, of the vote. Um, had it happened a few days back, I'm not sure that the outcome might have been... Might have been uh, the outcome might, might It spread been very quickly, though, didn't it? It spread very quickly, It reached yeah. a lot of people very yeah, fast. Yeah, it, it reached, uh, yeah, a lot. And it lot would have been faster than anybody could actually deny it or re yeah, but respond to it. Again, um, actually, I, I think the, uh, the strategy of, of the... Uh, I was in the U.S., so I, I saw that uh, mm. in a kind of uh, remote fashion, but uh, I think the strategy of Emmanuel Macron was actually choosing not to respond because if he, he believed that if he was going to respond on this stuff, he was going to feed the fire. 
That's one of the problems with fake news. Is mm. some, some, some kind of the remedy can be worse than the, uh, than the damage. Because when you debunk a fake news, you actually attract attention yes. to it. It doesn't mm. mean that you not, mm. should not do it, but that's part of the, of the, of the risk. Mm. Now, look, I'd like to um, open the uh, discussion to questions from the floor. Is there anybody there who would like to ask a question of any of the panellists and direct them from me? Yes? Sir. Hi, I'm going to carry the conversation. I'm going to have a question for you. There's three things you should like to ask a bit of a ecosystem of fake news. One is different groups that are mobilising around this. In covering it, have you seen anything in that area that's working to kind of get beyond this basic fundamentals in the nature which is a civilised and what things they believe? I'm not sure I completely get the question. No. Thank you. Oh. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll start again. I was just saying, um, have you seen in your coverage of startups in this space of debunking fake news, and there seems to be a bit of funding going into this area and a few organisations that are trying to find different solutions to it, have you seen anything that works and I think, you know, that gets past this human nature fundamental, which is that people like clicking on things that they agree with? And, you know, fake, even fact-checking is very difficult to get through to people if they're not interested in, in the verdict being no or yes or, you know, whatever they politically agree with. No, I, actually, I had never seen any startup uh, um, jumping into the, uh, the fact-checking business. It's for one reason, I think, is that fact-checking is absolutely un, unprofitable, non-profitable business. So, I mean, that's... I mean... Uh, I mean... Yeah, uh, it has to be done by some kind of uh, non-profit organisation. Not necessarily uh, for-profit, but there's been some funding, some of it philanthropic, into startups. Oh yes, uh, well, y- yes, there, there is a great deal of uh, of, uh, of funding. Which uh, one of the biggest is uh, Craig Newmark uh, from Craigslist. He, he put something like uh, 12 million dollars. Uh, he gave to uh, CUNY, City of University of New York. Uh, to actually favor uh, uh, fight uh, against against fake news, but I mean, uh, by essence, uh, f- uh, fighting fake news is uh, is not is not profitable. There is no money to to do, and and believe me, the ecosystem of startup is everything, but it's about money. So, period. Mm. I think one of the problems here is that um, fake news is extremely quick and cheap to produce, um, and the debunking of it is time-consuming and expensive to produce, and that's a real issue. Um, if you want to, you know, produce a quick debunk of something and, and get it out there, um, you know, the lies have already spread, you know, all around social media. I mean, what's the old, what's the old saying? A lie travels halfway around the world before the shoe, truth gets its shoes on, um, and that is a real issue. And even if you do debunk something um, effectively because you've done the research, getting back to the people who saw that initial meme or, or fake post is a difficult process. So you have to, you have to work out you know, the best ways to do that. Hopefully Google can help us do that sort of thing. But there are efforts to, to deal with fact-checking or to produce fact-checking and debunking in real time. And one of the, one of the efforts has been coordinated by Google, and that is that um, a, a database has been created of every fact check that has been done around the world and it's going to be collated in one place and um, organisations such as Facebook and Google and, and others who share social media posts um, will have access to this they, if they use it as part of their, their, um, their website. If someone does a search or if, or if something that has been contested comes up in front of them, they get a flag immediately saying, uh, we just thought we'd let you know this content has been flagged as, as untrue or has been contested by this organisation and it includes a link so that you can go back to that fact check that is being done. So that hopefully will prevent um, misinformation being spread again and again and again. It doesn't really stop it because people keep sharing this um, misinformation. But what it doesn't do, and I think this is one of the, one of the unspoken um, problems that fact-checking faces, fact-checking and verification, is that there are a whole lot of people out there who simply don't care whether information is true or not. They simply don't care. They don't care about facts. They don't care about rational argument. If they have an agenda, all they care about is that, is that their agenda is pushed and that their agenda is successful, that they can persuade to their, people to their cause. So one of the things that we need to do is 
hammer the importance of fact and of rational argument and of you know, considered debate and evidence-based debate. Um, and we need to go back to education systems for that. You know, it, trying to tackle it at this end of the process is really, really hard. At least trying to teach people to have um, critical skills, you know, critical analysis, uh, analysis skills and media literacy earlier on will help stem some of that, I would hope. And I would just make the point that, yes, fact-checking is expensive, um, and it was, it's unlikely to um, create a, be a profit-maker. But, you know, we talked in the beginning about this problem that journalists have, which is not liking marketing or not being good at marketing. And I do think that in this environment, yes, there are people that you're just never going to convert. But there are people who actually do want to, you know, share correct information, to not be called out for sharing things that are not correct. And I think that that's where, you know, news organizations and journalists can really develop a brand. You're already starting to see that. Um, the New York Times, Trust, Washington Post, all of these big, you know, uh, news organizations in the aftermath of the U.S. election, you know, they're kind of leaning into that. And I think that, um, you know, you could see that happening more and more in terms of that brand awareness um, if news organizations get into the business of creating fact-check memes and they put their logo right at the bottom of that, that little, you know, that meme, that photo. You know, I think that you could see how that um, could actually enhance the brand and, and, and provide a service in a way that people are actually consuming content. Yeah, I think you're so right. I think, um, you know, the, the trust element is really important. Um, but again, you have to get into my 14-year-old's feed information feed. So I think it is. I think, I think investing in um, product development, I think investing in marketing, I think um, investing in um, uh, audience um, uh, information for, for your newsrooms and your journalists and making sure that that's absolutely a key part of your role, understanding who's tuning in and who's not and caring about who's not. So it's, um, it's about having the beautiful 2,000-word uh, dissertation, but it's also about that just taster that does make it in to the 14-year-old's you know, information feed. Mm. Well, the way we do fact-checks at the moment, we do our fact-check, and then we think of a dozen different ways of um, presenting that information in different formats, including video, including uh, animated storyboards and that sort of thing. But I'd, I'd like to make one point. Um, I was editor of ABC um, Fact Check and we lost our funding and we um, went into the dark side or into darkness for about 12 months. But it was interesting, during that time that we were um, producing our fact checks, we had the left and the right complaining or saying, this is wonderful, this is terrible, this is shocking, you know, just left-wing ABC journalists at it again. But when we uh, lost our funding, we disappeared we got this whole wave of support from people we'd never heard from. They'd never communicated with us. They'd obviously uh, been reading us. Uh, and there's this sort of big hidden audience. And it's quite interesting. Since we restarted as RMIT ABC Fact Check, our Facebook numbers have jumped back up to where they were. Um, in fact, we're now ahead of where we were. Same with Twitter and everything else. So it's, there is this you know, don't underestimate the audience aspect to it. I understand what everybody's saying here. The, the problem... Sorry, the problem is the, the, the voice uh, doesn't have the same... Uh, uh, the, the same uh, force. Uh, during the electoral campaign in the United States, the engagement of, of fake news on Facebook was 20 times higher than the engagement for legitimate news. Yeah. And Facebook is dealing every single day with 100 million links. So fact-checking is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely great. But unfortunately, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean when it comes to controlling the flow of fake news. You're talking about a fire hose and somebody yeah, with their finger yeah. <laughs> trying to stop that's, it. Yeah. That's one of the yeah. problems. Uh, any more questions from the floor? Uh, sushi. Sushi Das, I'm a journalist with um, RMIT, ABC Fact Check. Um, it seems to me we've got a huge battle on our hands. This is a global you know, force, as you were saying, this hose of fake news, memes, unverified photos, citizen-generated um, information. And on the other side, you've got this dwindling group of journalists all over the world 
and uh, the, you know the brave old fact check units, as you said, Frederick, just a drop in the ocean, really. Um, if this is not to be a battle that we lose, uh, it seems to me that at some stage we're going to have to engage, or rather try and generate uh, a young generation that has learnt to be sceptical, that understands how to uh, look at news and how to work out whether it's real and what the sources are. So does this mean that um, we have to be engaging with not just trying to engage young people through memes and all the rest of it, but talking to schools and engaging with parents as well? Because surely this... This is where we have to sort of we have to include these people because this is where it all starts, isn't it? When people are young, do you do you agree? Well, that, that's sorry, can I jump in? I, that's partly what I was saying before about um, the need for education early on to sort of develop these critical thinking habits and these sort of media literacy habits early on. A few weeks ago, I was cleaning up my son's bedroom and I was just tidying up some stuff and I found a a little bit of green cardboard with plastic covered over and I had a look at it and it said on it. What is the difference between fact and opinion? Fact is blah, blah, blah. Opinion is blah, blah, blah. And I thought, that's really interesting. And I went to him and I said, Billy, where did you get this? What, what, what's that from? He said, oh, that was part of a lesson that we had at school. My son was seven. And I, was, I thought that was fantastic. At the age of seven, they're already talking about the difference between fact and opinion. It's being done. It is already being done. And I think that's a great thing. I just want to see more of it. And what I really want to see is that the 20s, the 30s, the 40s being taught the same thing. Because opinion is taking over. Opinion is becoming such a, a, um, an accepted currency now, a, a, an unbased opinion. Part of the problem we have in, in this digital world is that um, we can support any opinion we have with anything we can find on the internet. Motivated reasoning and, um, is a really easy thing to do these days. We can support any opinion that we have and we can say, my fact is just as good as yours. My alternative fact is just as good as yours. And if we don't understand, if we don't have the critical thinking skills to understand the value of a source and what a, a legitimate source is and what a, a not legitimate source is and the difference between the two, um, then, then we're doomed. But I think that education process has started. It's the people in the middle who need to understand. Any more questions? Karen Percy from the ABC. I lived in uh, Moscow for a number of years and you'd be aware of the trolling factories in Russia. I'm wondering whether, and, and the motivation for those men, and they're mostly men, is purely money. There's not actually much ideology or real passion involved. I'm wondering if there is any um, move to uh, have a counter, you know, former Soviet-era group of trolls who does the good stuff or tries to knock down the trolls. Because, as you say, it's extremely difficult time consuming to put out the real information there but surely there's a way to using technologies to block these folks I mean it's very obvious a lot of the time on Twitter the accounts that are trolls they've got a number of numbers behind them but I'm wondering whether anybody's aware of any kind of um, altruistic person out there who's looking at thinking of something like that the uh, counter troll army somewhere along the line well, that's sort of what I was suggesting with my PC troll army a bit before that sort of idea. But, but are you suggesting that we, we have an, an army of these trolls to attack the Russian population, to, to feed into the Russian or to counter what they're saying? Yeah, I don't know, like, what, like the Twitter version of a Scud missile, sort of hitting, hitting these things in midair. I don't know that that would work. I know that a lot of these um, bot accounts are being taken down. Twitter's getting much better at identifying fake accounts and analysing the sorts of material that they produce and when they produce it, and they're taking them down in the hundreds of thousands. Facebook says it's all, it also takes down fake accounts all the time and is cutting off... A million, yeah, million, yeah, million per day. A million per day. So um, they're trying to do their bit. Um, but it is a huge tide. It's an enormous tide. I do know that the Americans... I was catching up on a Time magazine article today from earlier this year about uh, the Russians' disruption um, propaganda model they're using social media to do this, and they said that the Americans are doing similar sorts of things, but they're about 10 years behind. Now, whether you want to get in that, into that sort of version of a, a modern social media cold war, I don't know. Whether it'll be effective, I don't know. There's also a version that goes around that the Americans actually know how to do it, but they're not doing it because they don't want to counter strategies at this point. Who knows? And they've got whole teams of people working in the Pentagon and elsewhere uh, on how to combat this disruption. Mm. But 
Irene, you're the expert here. What do you think? Can it, is there a technology, is there a way of actually... Well, I can speak for Google, right, yeah. and what Google's doing. And so, um, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, Google is not a, a social media platform. Um, it's, it's a search engine, right? And so what we find is that um, a lot of times for those who are doubtful or skeptical, when they are actually trying to fact-check, they actually go to Google to search to try to find out what is true, right? So they'll, they'll actually, for those who have already have the news literacy and have the media literacy, they will come to us. And so for us, what we want to do is ensure that when they come to us and ask a question, that the information that they're getting is a high quality. And so, um, you know, it, it is a torrent. There is this flood of misinformation all the time. But we believe, and I certainly believe, and maybe it's, I'm biased because I was a reporter for a long time, I think that journalism has a very, very important role to play to, um, to be that purveyor of high quality information. And so one of the things that Google has done um, over the recent months is to implement something called the fact check tag. So the fact check tag, what it does is, um, you know, news organizations can uh, essentially start coding their own articles. And so what they'll do is they'll indicate um, that this article is fact checking a certain statement of fact or something. And then um, by coding it in a certain way, it allows um, our algorithm to read that article and indicate, oh, this article actually is fact checking a statement. So that when it shows up in Google search or Google news, it actually ha literally has a little tag that says fact check. And you'll see, um, you know, Google is increasingly tagging, um, you know, articles and news in other ways. You'll see opinion, you'll see analysis. Um, a lot of this relies on the coding that these news organizations are doing so that when it serves up through, through search that, you know, we can actually identify those things. And that's why I think that, in my mind, labeling is a very important part um, of what we're talking about. It's interesting, your son's, um, you know, what is the difference between fact and opinion? Well, you know, if it's both coming from, if, if both of those things are coming from the same news organization and they're not labeled correctly, then how are you supposed to know, right? Um, so I think that, you know, this labeling aspect is something that we are really focused on. Um, and, and so that's, uh, you know, I think that that's, you know, trying to elevate. You know, y you could spend all your time trying to whack all those, um, every website and take them down. But really, you know, if we can elevate what we know to be kind of high-quality information that has a standard, that has a transparent methodology, um, then, you know, that if we can, you know, raise those voices above the noise, I think that that's something that, um, you know, can help to service those who um, are seeking, you know, the truth. It is actually very interesting to see that Google is taking the initiative, not the industry itself. Mm. And I think completely pathetic that whether it is in Europe or in America, for instance, news organization, legit news organization, we are enabled to come up with some kind of standard to say, okay, here is the way we are going to express the, uh, the quality of our journalism, the level of resources we are pouring into our, our work and so on and so forth. And this is actually the, uh, the mission of the Trust Project, which is developed at the University of Santa Clara in California. And uh, they try, they have been trying for something like two years now, to uh, set up some kind of standard to say, to, uh, to tell to a news organization, here is how you should structure your story in order to express the fact that this story has been verified by fact-checkers, by uh, law, including lawyers, and so on and so forth. But the problem is that this industry is so unable to work with itself, with, uh, among with themselves, that they are unable to come up with some kind of standard in order to express the, co the quality of their work. And I really think it is really pathetic. Mm. No? No, no. True, well, true. But, but there are organisations trying to come up with some tools, at least, to yeah. help journalists. One of them, I'll just very quickly tell you about something that Full Fact in the UK is doing. Full Fact is a, a charity fact-checking organisation. It's a not-for-profit, because you can't make money out of fact-checking. Um, but they received a huge grant in the last couple of years to, um, to work on a couple of initiatives. And one of them is an artificial intelligence-based system um, in which the idea is that um, its algorithm can read... Um, captions on sp live speeches that are made on television um, and they're working on um, an AI system that will turn um, a speech-to-text um, system that will turn uh, live speeches and live TV programs, news TV programs into text immediately and then the algorithm of the software will then read what is being said and fact-check what is being said in real time. 
in real time. Now, that sounds impossible, but some of the stuff I've seen is amazing. It's really, really amazing. The depth of understanding of language and the nuances of language and understanding when something is sarcastic or ironic rather than you know, a straight statement is amazing. It's developing in ways that you wouldn't believe. And the idea is that um, a lot of this stuff that is being said in real time and produced in real time can be um, delivered... The, the algorithm can deliver to journalists who are at a press conference, for example. Um, the software will be reading converting to text what the politician is saying, it will then check what is being said against a database of reports, um, previous articles, all sorts of other um, types of information, and will throw up for the journalist, that fact wasn't true, this is the relative report that they're quoting from, you might want to check this, you might want to have a look at that. So there are moves to create live, real-world um, fact-checking um, for journalists, yeah. not being produced by journalists, but it's being produced by computer engineers a, for journalists to use. There's a presentation on that, and the, the good thing about it is that they're going to make it free. That's right. <laughs> when, when they perfect the system, so it'll be available to all of us um, to use. Uh, now, I'd better wrap it up. Is there any final comments uh, from the panel before we... Um, yeah, I, I don't want to end on a pessimistic note because I, I do think we keep talking about a deluge of fake news and, uh, and people's inability to tell the difference between you know, fake news and real news and, and, and um, not caring about fact. But I think there are good people in this fight and I know that journalism is changing in a way that's going to make it a... Um, I think the role of journalists is changing from simply being reporters of information to filters of information and checkers of information and verifiers because as more and more information goes out into social media that is dubious, of a dubious nature, the role of journalists is already evolving to become a, a, a profession of, of validation and of checking and it's, becoming, it's going to become more and more useful to a public and I think the public is recognising that already. As soon as Trump started attacking the media in the United States, what happened to the subscriptions for all the, the main online newspapers? They shot up by hundreds of thousands. It was a huge boost in the arm of the, the um, journalism industry in the it's US. It's kept journalism alive. It has kept journalism alive <laughs> for a while, a bit longer, because people are showing that they do care about what is true and they do care about the trust that is, um, already exists in a lot of these media organisations that have been around for a long, long time. Irene, would you like to... I was to... saying, you know who are, is, who are, who are those subscribers? They're millennials. Yeah. I mean, that's the one very interesting thing that came from that Reuters Institute report, is that yes. in the U.S., millennials are paying for news, and it's increasing. And also, the research shows they actually want to know what's true and what isn't true. Exactly. Yeah, so, they actually have a you know, the, there is, I think that there is light at the end of the tunnel, mm. and, um, you know, so long as journalists can keep adopting techniques to make sure that their content is interesting and sticky and has uh, high standards, that there is, there is hope for the future. Kate, any final words? Yeah, I agree. I think for that very reason. I think, um, I think you know, there's generations who want to know um, the truth and who are inquisitive and curious, and I think it's about having support networks to ensure that that's possible. So all the education, the critical thinking... Um, I'm really optimistic about the future because every day I'm surrounded by people in this library who care and I tend to think that that's the majority of the population as opposed to those who are seeking to reinforce their own views of the world. Frederick? And I beg to disagree a little bit. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I, I'd, like to, I, I'd like to twist my mind to see some light at the end of the tunnel, but I, I think it's going to get worse because before it, get, it gets better. I'm very concerned by the fact that in America, as we speak now, roughly 50% of the population considers Facebook as its main source of information. And again, Facebook reduce the information to snap stuff, small stuff, it kills the brand, and it kills the authorship, and it kills the economy of news. And that's why I have a hard time to be very optimistic. I'm not, I'm not concerned about the people who are in, your, in this room. I'm not concerned about our kids, because we spend a great deal of, of time to educate them about the value of information, about opinion versus fact, and so on and so forth. I'm concerned for the rest of the population. That's why I'm not sorry to be... Well, I'm sorry we can't end up on a positive note, but... <laughs> Three to one. Three to one, OK. Well, look, um, I'd like to thank the panel very much. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed being here.